welcome to this new Dialogue podcast. We're starting the Dialogue Heritage podcast. Uh, I'm Taylor Petrie, the editor of Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought. And uh, Andy, do you want to introduce yourself? I'm Andy Pitcher Davis, and I am the art editor for Dialogue and the provocateur of, of thought and, and culture. <laughs> We're so glad to uh, get to do this uh, podcast. Andy, you and I kind of had this idea of talking a little bit about the history as you were going through the uh, old issues, as you were collecting all of the uh, archives of every issue ever published uh, in dialogue, and you were going through all of them, and we're finding so much inspiring material, and we kind of had this idea, well, let's talk a little bit about this and tell people this story. Do you want to say a little bit about what inspired you there or what kind of jumped out to you as you were doing that project? What I wanted to just start with real quick is the, is the address from President Hubie Brown from an eternal quest, Freedom of the Mind, delivered at BYU the 13th of May, 1969. And I think this is important because I think that there is a lot of um, juxtaposition and uh, quite a bit of, of shifting ground at this time. So in 1969, he says this, one of the most important things in the world is freedom of the mind. From this, all other freedoms spring. Such freedom is necessarily dangerous, for one cannot think right without running the risk of thinking wrong. But generally, more thinking is the antidote for the evils that spring from wrong thinking. More thinking is required, and we call upon you students to exercise your God-given right to think through on every proposition that is submitted to you and to be unafraid to express your opinions with proper respect, of course, for those to whom you talk and proper acknowledgement of your own shortcomings. You young people live in an age when freedom of the mind is suppressed over much of the world. We must preserve it in the church and in America and resist all efforts of earnest men to suppress it. For when it is suppressed, we might lose the liberties vouchsafed in the Constitution of the United States. Preserve, then, the freedom of your mind in education and in religion and be unafraid to express your thoughts and to insist upon your right to examine every proposition. We are not so much concerned with whether your thoughts are orthodox as we are that you shall have thoughts. I'm interested, Taylor, as you start off in this editorship and you're looking at the beginnings of this, what is it that you see yourself reflected in? Oh, that it's a, it's a great question. And for me, I think my experience of discovering dialogue is probably similar to many people. Many people grew up with dialogue in their homes or their families where, you know, it's been around for a long time. So a lot of people know it. But uh, I discovered it when I was an undergraduate. And I remember feeling as I was studying religion, not at a, a Latter-day Saint University, around no other Latter-day Saints in, in my school, feeling very alone. Mm -hmm. And in part, what I discovered with dialogue was that there were other people who had thought this stuff before, who had asked questions before. So for me, it was discovering real live dialogue partners. And I think part of what the inspiration, as I'm reading through these early documents and, and hearing the stories of these of the two co-founders, Gene England and Wes uh, um, Johnson, yeah. uh, Johnson, their story of needing to find conversation partners and people who really um, shared, again, their values and so on. And there was this great line from one of the early um, letters to the editor that I thought expressed this really, really nicely. Let me see if I can find you know, that really the, fast. The here. letters to the editor are so rich. 
because it's like this, amazing, it's incredible. <laughs> it is the fingerprints of it's like the echo of of this of of this effort that they are doing. You know, you bring something up while you're looking for that. You talk about isolation and your feeling of isolation, and I think you are exactly right. Your experience of wanting to connect with others out of your isolation was a lot of what motivated these founders to connect with other believers outside. Yeah, we will. I, I want to tell the story of the founding a little bit, but let me read this letter because okay, it, it. it was just for me stuck out. They all start. It's so funny. They all start. Dear sirs. Yes, all of them. <laughs> and, and so this one, just to paraphrase it, or not to paraphrase it, but to, to excerpt it. I borrowed the first two issues and have read each one with a great sense of gratitude. I knew it. I knew you were there somewhere, you people in the church who think, but I had begun to despair of finding you. And now this very good journal is available to me and I am most appreciative. Um, and that, that kind of longing to find other members who think, and, and that brings it back to that Hubie Brown uh, sermon that you quoted. He was one of the first general authorities uh, uh, to publish in dialogue and was a, a major supporter defended dialogue along the way for many people who, who tried to uh, uh, get it kicked out of BYU bookstore yes, or absolutely. you know suppress it in some way and he was a big defender of it and so I, I was glad to, to hear that quote but but this sense of community mm -hmm. that is necessary yes. for uh, to, to have conversation partners to have dialogue as uh, as an act of faith itself as an act of, of thought itself, um, that it's not just something that we all do uh, alone. It's something that we have to have conversation partners. Well, and I think that that is the nature also um, of the personality of Mormonism. We are community. You know, we, we are, we, we operate in concert with each other. And I think that to, um, that, that, that people at this time, especially were voracious. They're, they're, they're so thirsty for a real conversation and not, something that is necessarily dictated to them. And I and that's what's so fascinating to me and also a little bit dangerous is do you do you feel like they knew what they were you know getting into do you feel like the beginning was was a dangerous exercise? I mean what was the energy of of going forward and talking about these hard things? I mean they bring up everything. What was your list yeah. of things that they talk about in the first 5 years? <laughs> yeah. I mean, they, it's, it's no, it, it holds it, barred. They were dealing with everything. Yeah. Yeah. Sexuality and reproductive rights and women's rights and race and, and taboo subjects. And, and that comes with it, you know, to, to be the caretaker of taboo in many ways comes with it with an inherent danger, I think as well, which is exciting. I mean, I think that that is something that is energizing the entire project. There's something that is a, a through line. There's a way in which reading it feels like you're reading historical documents. Those early, those early ones. You know, you're, we're reading this yes. glimpse into the late 1960s, early 1970s in the church, in the world, and there's so much fascinating things that are going on there. Uh, Martin Luther King is assassinated yes. during this time period. We've got. Um, uh, we've got race riots happening all over the United States, and Dallin H. Oaks writes a uh, an article addressing that topic in dialogue during this time period. 
the Vietnam War, the again, the broader sort of civil rights movement. You've got Vatican II in Catholicism and this sort of liberalizing trend that's happening in, uh, in religions around the world. Um, but at the same time, you've got Ezra Taft Benson, who is uh, deeply entrenched in the John Birch Society and yes. conspiracy theories during this time period. He's positing a run for the presidency with George Wallace and, and others. Um, you've got Family Home Evening is just getting started during the same time period mm -hmm. as well in the church. Um, uh, the Mormon History Association is another organization. It, doesn't, it actually gloms onto dialogue for the first 10 years before they publish their own journal, but the Mormon History Association is just starting and this kind of a flourishing of historical studies in the church is going on. It's just such a kind of potent time period um, but at the same time, it all feels so familiar, too, because we're still dealing with we're a lot still, of these same issues, at least the legacy of them. What's fascinating to me is, is how directly they were facing each one of those issues. I love the, there's a letter about the race riots in Watts and how there was a state conference and the state president gets up and he says, you know, we as Mormons could have done much more. We could have gone out in L.A. and and you know, given people blankets and food, we could have made food for, for, for people, we could have given them shelter in our buildings. I mean, that's a very dangerous thought back then. One of the things that, it, and what is interesting to me, as you mentioned, all of those things that are changing, and the things that are changing within our own church and our own people, it makes me think of an incubator. And I think about really how young we are as a religion, one of the things I reflect on is that our prophet, Russell Nelson, is within six months half the age of our entire religion. I mean, that's, mm. that's significant right there, which means we are young, which means all of that, all of those things you mentioned are probably, I mean, I'd be interested with your perspective as an American scholar also, are they in keeping with American religions outside of our our little world, but also it's extra exciting because it is the embryos kind of coming to life. It is this incubator of thought. And, and then you add in there, you stir into this, this mix what you're talking about with this hardline conservative that, that, that they are the word. And so, so I'm interested, let me ask you that question. Do you see it in, you know, Harold Bloom mentions that Mormonism is the American religion. Do you think even at this point in time, in the 60s, it's in keeping with what's going on with contemporary American religions elsewhere? It's definitely, you know, it, it's, this, it's this little snapshot, I think, of the larger tension that's mm -hmm. happening, of course, not just in the church, but in religion in general during that time period, that there are these liberalizing trends. And obviously the... Uh, founders of dialogue are very inspired by those. They're referencing Vatican II at the, the yeah. very first issue. They're quoting Reinhold Niebuhr as sort of uh, uh, still today. I mean, he's still in the news today as a as an yeah. inspiring figure for uh, a number of political uh, characters. But uh, they're kind of drawing on that um, tendency and trend in the church, and they're looking for it. In, in Mormon history, too, one mm -hmm. of the early articles is by uh, Leonard Arrington on the Mormon intellectual tradition, right? So they're, they're yeah. trying to find it, not only 
inside the church, but also outside the church and seeing them in conversations. And of course, at the same time, there is this conservative pull. The rise of Protestant fundamentalism is kind of uh, 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 just around the corner here in the 1970s. It's been lurking underground for a couple of decades, but it's about to come back with a vengeance with the rise of the religious right in the 1970s. And many figures, including Ezra Taft Benson and others, are really closely uh, intertwined with what's going on there. You've got, of course, Joseph Fielding Smith and Bruce R. McConkie, who are also deeply influenced by Protestant fundamentalism. So there are these uh, uh, splits, these these uh, these two really kind of two different kinds of Mormonism coexisting yes. and coming into conflict, sometimes literally on the pages of dialogue right. <laughs> and sometimes because of what is written in dialogue, as we'll, we'll talk about a couple of those stories, but absolutely this broader tension that the church was in and I think is still in, 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 in a way, is really defining uh, the moment that that these individuals come together to create this uh, this new product. My question would be this: Is there an extra sort of rubber meets the road as that energy and the, the searching for more um, sort of influences outside some and looking for art? You know, being looking more towards art and towards literature. Is there an extra tension given? our association with conservatism, our association with the John Birch Society? Is there an extra tension within our own people? Do we feel like um, that is something that we experience that is unique? Or do you feel like that happened universally? I think, so uh, this is a good place to kind of jump in to tell the story of the founding. And because I think that might help to answer that question a little bit. Um, And so let's do the who, what, when, where, why, I guess. We've been talking a lot about the why, but let's talk a little (laughs) bit more about the details. But I think it, it, for me, at least, it was really revealing the way that they were very sensitive to kind of threading the needle with church authorities. And that is something distinctive in the church relative to other Protestant uh, communities where you don't like what that guy's saying. You go start your other church or you go join another church or whatever, right? But but the deference to authority was very important to them uh, to kind of navigate that that correctly. But let's do the who, what, when, where, why. That sounds great. That sounds great. From my understanding, first of all, there was several people, it was kind of a pop, there's these other pop-up things where several people were talking about doing a journal, and Francis Menlove approached Eugene England, who was at Stanford at the time, and I believe that Wes Johnson had already thought about doing something himself, and in what, and this is so typically Eugene England, I knew him well, and he he is like, well, let's just do this, and he was very much about the idea that part of what makes our religious practice holy is that we we work in conjunction with other people and i think that they made it work as i as i spoke with charlotte she said to me once charlotte is jean's um widow and charlotte england said to me she said we just had no idea how difficult it would be (laughs) which is the nature of things you know but i think also and you talk about this idea where I like what you said about in other faith traditions, they hop into a different branch or they, we can't even go to a different congregation. You know, we can't (laughs) even, it it is what is on our geographic block. We have to get along. And I think that this is something that is interesting because internally many of these scholars and creatives and artists have this internal sort of frustration that you see in the letters and, and this internal sort of um, 
desire for something much meatier than what they're getting from correlation. And, and then on the, on the flip side of that, you got to show up and play nice to the people you're working with, because this is who, this is how we are tempered. This is how we are made holy. And I think as I go through the journal, I'm going to throw this out there over and over again. I think the act of, I see Christianity and a Christian spirit, and I see the act of creating this journal, the act of sharing this information freely with others as a form of devotion. I see this as their way of consecrating in their own way um, something that was what is was was made holy by sharing it and by 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 condescending into this crucible of culture and politics and all these sorts of things, it was worth it because what was unique about this group of scholars is there had been scholars prior. There had been PhDs, but they had not necessarily, like, they hadn't stuck with it. And what this group did is not just say it's this versus this, I see them, they spanned the gap. They were the conduit. They were the bridge between two sides because they figured out how to sensibly have intellect but also believe. I mean, it's almost as if they decided to believe. Do you see that Christianity throughout? Do you see that sense of belief in, in when you go through these early issues? Absolutely. These are these are incredibly, like, dedicated uh, uh faithful members of the church who wanted to create, create something. And, and there's something about their intellect that is shocking to me as Absolutely. I go back uh, and look at it. Their intellectual talents are so profound. I mean, uh, uh, Jean England was a grad student at the time in English at Stanford and delayed, of course, his graduate studies as a result of starting this journal, um, but still successfully completed it, went on and got a job not at BYU and eventually yeah. ended up at BYU. Wes Johnson is somebody who I was much less familiar with, um, but became familiar with uh, him as doing, doing this research a little bit. He was a young professor at Stanford uh -huh. at the time. Um, he had uh, started at BYU for a couple of years as his undergraduate and then transferred to Harvard to finish off his, uh, his undergraduate, spent his last two and a half years or so at, at Harvard there, um, then went on to Stanford Law for a little while, then decided he really wanted to be a historian and went back to Columbia. Wow. Uh, and just this resume is so <laughs> incredible. <laughs> Uh, while at Columbia, he studied black politics in Senegal what? and became an expert in uh, Francophone uh, African politics. That, wow. He had served a mission in France, and so he was fluent in French. And then, um, uh, of course, got tenure at Stanford when he was uh, a professor there uh, in history. He later went to UCSB, UC um, Santa Barbara, and then ended up actually at BYU again in his, in his later years but just this incredible resume. And on the side, he happened to found the most important Mormon studies journal ever, you know? You know, in his <laughs> spare time, in his spare time, you know? Yeah. And one of the yeah. things, one of my favorite essays in the early years is by Carl Keller. I love Carl Keller. This is, I, I'm always, I keep going back, I return to the words of Carl Keller. And he's got an essay called On Words and the Word of God, The Delusions of Mormon Literature. And, and he says this, as you're talking about these minds, about these, projects that these these different scholars are working on like the boundaries they are pushing 
he's talking about literature and he kind of says there isn't a Mormon literature because it is, it's, it's, Right now, it's, it's, it's too insipid. He says, a final delusion that denies us a literature of our own is the insistence on sweetness and light in the things we read and the things we write. This delusion, more than any others, has been held up by most editors and contributors to the Improvement Era, the Relief Society magazine, and the Instructor. So that almost everything that is published in the church is non, non-literature, non-entity, even as literature, it's nonsense. And so the frustration of having these ideas, yet not having the venue to express them, is, I think, very interesting. So I think that, that is something that is very refreshing for me as I read these early issues, is there is, there, there is no propaganda in what they write. You know, it's interesting how much how productive they were in these first years. They had been thinking about this stuff for a while. Well, these were sophisticated point. things. Yeah. And finally they had a place to express this stuff. So you, so Keller is one of the founding board members. Um, yeah. And a lot of these guys who, who were doing it were already in their, in their positions, uh, looking at the list of these founding board members. Some, so many of the names I recognize some of them, I don't necessarily know, but are probably, uh, you know, big names in their own fields, but Do you want to mention Chase the, Peterson, want, exactly. Leonard Arrington, Lowell Benyon, Sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, who's the highlight of the board, founding board that is always sticks out? Well, it was surprising to me. Yeah. <laughs> it's Dallin H. Oaks. Dallin yeah. H. Oaks. Dallin H. And, Oaks right and there. And so he, he and Johnson knew each other at BYU. And I, I think had just uh, uh, kept in touch, obviously, probably both impressed each other. Uh, you know, Oaks was at uh, Chicago Law School teaching there at, at the time. And so... Um, I'm sure they were, it's a relatively small world of Mormon intellectuals, and, and I'm sure that they uh, knew each other. But Oaks was a, I'm sorry, Johnson was able to talk Oaks into doing it, even though Oaks was a little bit skeptical, oh, really? thinking that it would become a kind of leftist outfit. You know? <laughs> um, and, uh, but he talked him into it on his assurances that they were going to be, you know, play it straight, and that it was a, you know, dialogue where all different voices would be there. And Oaks publishes um, yes. After a couple of controversies that the journal had had uh, uh, in the early years, Oaks ends up publishing in it too. Yeah. So um, it was a place where they were all trying to bring together really kind of the elite Mormon intellectuals of the time period to to say what they had to say about what the church, uh, uh, how the church has influenced their work. And literature is one of those ones where you you, you bring this up where I think I hadn't fully appreciated yeah. how invested yeah. they were. In, in the arts, yes. in literature. And I think culture. it's because Gene is a, 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 an English uh, a student, you know, so he's, he's invested in that. But I, as a kind of different sort of academic, always read dialogue for the articles, you sure. could say, right? Sure. <laughs> and didn't read it for the pictures. I wasn't oh, no, interested I, in the pictures. That's why we're, but... we're, a, good, we're a good pair, because I'm flipping through and I'm going, that's a LeConte Stewart sketch right there. You know, <laughs> look right, at those right. James Christiansons. That's a Jesus I can believe in, you know. So so it's kind of, it's very interesting, but that's, a, that, I'm glad you're bringing this up. Why art? Why literature? Why do they yeah. hammer this home? They had such a much broader perspective on what Mormon intellectual life was about than a kind of narrow 
history or theology or, you know, uh, though they, they certainly published in, in, in those areas and those were important to them and, and remain important to the, to the journal. But they had a vision here that, that, I, that I'm proud to say that we've continued Absolutely. of highlighting art as a part of the Mormon intellectual uh, experience. Well, you know, one of the things I often say, because I have a passion for contemporary Mormon art and oftentimes abstract Mormon art. And um, one of my favorite artists is an artist named Doug Himes, which will be coming up on our winter issue, actually. And he does the Tree of Life, but he does it in the shape of the chalice. And and that this double entendre of 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 the of Christ being the tree of life and also of uh, the source of um, nourishment for our souls, but also in, in these kind of ways. And what I often say is, what we have an abstract theology, we have an abstract sort of sense of divinity, and what it takes a scholar to write seventeen pages, an artist with an abstract painting illustrates with one page, with one view. Basically what I say oftentimes is that the art and arts are the IKEA instructions to this complicated sort of construction of people and culture and, and, uh, and, and uh, doctrine. And that's what's so magical. I think that that's also something that is, they return to this history, and it's interesting because I see a lot of historians now in scholarship. And history, I think it is actually um, an essay by Bob Reese, Robert Reese, and he talks about how history is the parts. It's these sort of, if you go back and you can see these parts. But when you elevate it to literature, and he goes in and he talks about Vardis Fisher, and he talks about Vardis Fisher's observations on these parts of our history, his honest, his honest observation in uh, *Children of God* of our history, and he pulls them together in a way that the parts now are precious because they are they have a narrative. They are conjoined in a certain way, and and that is something that I keep going back to: is the power of art to convey quickly something that is divine in many ways. I want to spend our, our last little bit here talking about some of the specific stories or yeah. articles or, or pieces of art that really kind of jumped out to us. I've got three or four here, okay, but but uh, do you want to do do you have some that for you were kind of really spoke to you as both whether as historical artifacts or as continuing to have relevance today? Largely, dialogue is obviously about words. You know, it's a literary magazine. But what's fascinating to me is how many of the great great artists. Uh, that 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 constantly throughout the the last fifty years have been the stellar artists Doug Snow, Dale Fletcher. One of the things, though, for me, which I keep going back to, is the connection between poetry and art. And there's a poem by Linda Silito that I go back to over and over again. It's called "The Photograph," and it has a photograph. And it's short. Do you mind if I read it quickly? Go ahead. Okay, the photograph. The magazine picture Xeroxed, a duplicate print in my brain. Its caption, Mother, Cradle's Child, Dying of Starvation. Turned my thumb toward the page corner, but her burned paper eyes insisted, without hope or pity on mine. I wondered if his spidery legs had ever been chubby, and tried to believe it's not the same for her, as it would be for me, 
that skin and hair and geography or non-vitamin expectations or her own hard hunger might numb her. Still, there was the angle of her arms. Though it was weeks before I carried my son to the steps for September to cool him, draped across me, blonde head larger and heavy as stone, his skin scorching mine, sun-marked legs and arms suddenly thin, she crouched beside me, beseeching Allah and antibiotics, knowing their limitations, watching the patterns of delicate bones, searching the dreadful peace of early evening for a flight of small birds. Now I weep for her son, remembering the hours. Empty milk cartons weren't toys. Dangerous things lay in low places. All day the gate to the street gaped open. I mean, here is, here is this, this Mormon mother voice, and she finds solace and support in the belief of a Muslim woman that she sees an image of in a magazine. Like, that mm. is human connection. That is mm. what art does to connect these women, these, these, these women together in their unity. And she, you know, she backs up and she's like, look, my son was sick for hours. And that's the time when I could leave the gate open. What is it like for this other woman? And, and in our humanity, that is what makes us compassionate to others. So those are kind of some of those. Visually, visually, it's funny because I do keep going back to anything that will link words and images. I think that, that it's that it's very powerful. But this one is just stuck with me. I mean, I just think, and and she was new to me. Like I should have known. Like I I should have known her work, and and I didn't. I mean, it's this is what I'm talking about over and over again. I sit there and I flip through these journals and I feel like they were designed to be held in your hand like that these stories of intimacy and struggle and are meant to be right in front of you in this very vulnerable way and honestly I pick up every journal I find something that engages me and hooks me and surprises me in such a way that I just am proud to be of this of not just of the of I'm I'm proud to be of this tradition of people who are willing to have so much courage to risk and to love and to build that that they had enough within them and 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 I and I really very much feel like it's an honor to be associated with with these people who found their form of de- devotion an intellectual sort of um, of offerings. I think that the art and the poetry and and the fiction is actually probably one of the most timeless yes. pieces, uh, uh, aspects of dialogue. It doesn't age as much as uh, as some of the other scholarship. You know, yeah. there, there's it's funny because I've been going over some of these. Yeah, what do um, you see? What? Uh, some quotes that kind of jumped out to me. Uh, that that seem timeless to me in one way. Uh, P.A.M. Taylor writes in the third issue, secrecy does more harm to the church's reputation than could result from any disclosures from the archives. Yeah. There, yep. there are, <laughs> now the church has gotten much, much better, but we're still having that debate, right? Sure. Um, and then from the fourth issue, Leonard Arrington reminds us of the two most neglected aspects of the Mormon historical experience 
the modern and the international. And I just cracked up because we are literally still saying the exact same thing today. I just have completed a project on modern Mormon history. uh, And it's one of the only ones. It still feels like it's one of the only ones, you know, we're still and international is still a huge gap in what we know. It's funny that we've been having these same debates for over 50 years now. Absolutely. Oh, one of the things that's very interesting that I see is every once in a while you'll have like 1970 and I'm, I'm jumping ahead. I don't want to get too far ahead. But we'll have certain theme issues about a feminist uh, journal that's the whole journal is devoted to women or to race or these other things. And I'll see the same theme pop up again 10 years later. And sometimes Mm -hmm. they think they've made headway. And sometimes they think that they've gone backwards. But it's interesting to see them revisit these themes and reexamine themselves and tell a variation of the story, the previous story, that is just a little bit different And we have this benefit that we have like this whole entire sort of timeline of thought that we can, you know, they are, that it hadn't happened yet for them. Yet we get to go back and over and over again, they're rock solid in what they're saying. And that's what's so fascinating to me. So I want to tell one of the really interesting stories that I learned about for the first time in going through these old issues and almost missed until I kind of dug dug in a little bit more. It's a story of Stuart Udall, who was Uh, at the time the Secretary of the Interior in the United States uh, for the uh, Johnson administration. And he writes a letter to the editor for dialogue. Speaking of which, we, we wish we had more of these now. I think blogs Absolutely. and Facebook and everything has kind of taken that away yeah. from us. But he writes a letter to the editor where he uh, chastises the church on the issue of race. And this is in 1967, in the summer uh, 1967 issue of the journal. And he also sent the letter to President McKay at the time. But he uh, writes pretty succinctly, My fear is that the very character of Mormonism is being distorted and crippled by adherence to a belief and practice that denies the oneness of mankind. Oh, interesting. And I was a little bit surprised by this because it was was, uh, not the the 1973 uh, Lester Bush uh, article that's so famous, and we'll talk about that in our next sure. issue, I'm sure, in our next uh, uh, discussion, I'm sure, oh, that really one. was kind of raising this issue. But dialogue was dealing with this right at the beginning. And, and even, in the, even in the first couple of issues, this is in the second year of its publication, but even in the first couple of issues, they're already starting to kind of tinker around with this idea. They're reviewing books that are talking about it. They're, uh, you know, writing some letters to the editor about yeah. it. And of course, this one just, just blows away. Now, this was a huge controversy and made national news. Um, Time and Newsweek had begun to cover the issue. George Romney is starting to run for president during this time period and is getting hammered on the race issue. And um, <laughs> this just and, sound and you've got very so, high yes. profile people. Yeah. Well, yeah. and it yeah. is, it's what's so interesting is there again, it is the reciprocal pattern. It's this it's the cyclical pattern. There's a great article in the Journal of Mormon History in the spring 1999 uh, um, uh, uh, issue by Ross Peterson that talks about the Udall controversy. Um, and it's titled, Do Not Lecture the Brethren. He got into big trouble over this. Really? <laughs> <laughs> and the Do Not Lecture the Brethren was kind of the uh, the, uh, the the response that, that so many church leaders dealt with. They were very, very sensitive, of course, about this issue. It's just fascinating. Yeah. I think that, you know, 
there's a myth that no one ever challenged the church or that all members were faithful and everybody kind of uh, uh, didn't really question the, the church's stance. And, and that is just not true. I mean, it's the not true. most prominent members of the church, Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, I think one of the reasons that Udall writes it is because he's in such a prominent posi- national position of politics, working in the Johnson administration, working, I'm sure, yeah. on civil rights legislation and is deeply embarrassed by uh, the church's position on these issues and wants to kind of get on record to say, here's where I stand. Well, here's the struggle. What year was that letter written? 1967. 1967. So how long until the ban is lifted? How long? Yeah, another 11 more than a decade. 11 more years of this kind of lobbying. That's what's amazing to me is, is is the tenacity also. And of course, you know, people had been raising it since the 40s and 50s too, right? As he, he isn't the first, but there's a whole history of it. But dialogue, uh, I, I think in part because it gets national attention, and that's not the only time dialogue had got national attention. It had been covered in the New York Times at its launching on two for two different really? articles about it and had raised some alarms in, in Salt Lake because they hated negative publicity well, and they hated the idea that there was this renegade group of, uh, of people out there. And so they had to do a lot of massaging in the back channels to say, Hey, we're cool. We're good with you guys, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, to, to repair that relationship. But it, it created a lot of suspicion and this article didn't, didn't do them a lot of favors really. Well, and I think it was a lifetime of trying to prepare, re- repair that relationship on, bo- yeah. on, on the side of, uh, I, I'm going to say on both sides, but really, that struggle and that relationship right there of of pushing forward in a way that we've been taught to do. We're we're taught to use our minds mm-hmm. and we're taught to 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 advance in all these ways. Yet we feel this drag sometimes. And I think that it's a lifetime yeah. of of focusing on the fact that the re, that the relationship that people are more important than things in a lot of ways. But I love Juanita Brooks's uh, thought about writing herd and how she sticks with the herd she as a scholar is is also wrestling with a past generation that was very agricultural too so yeah they're looking forward as to what they're setting up for their children and for the next generation and their future but also they are wrestling with the past and her father says to her one day she says one day dad said to me my girl if you follow this tendency to criticize i'm afraid you will talk yourself out of the church i hate to see you do that i'm a cowboy and I've learned that if I ride in the herd, I am lost, totally helpless. One who rides counter to it is trampled and killed. One who only trails behind means little, because he leaves all responsibility to others. It is the cowboy who rides the edge of the herd, who sings and calls and makes himself heard, who helps direct the course. Happy sounds are generally better than cursing, but there are times when he must Maybe swear a little and swing a whip or a lariat <laughs> to round up a stray or turn turn or turn the leaders. So don't lose yourself. Don't ride away and, and desert the outfit. Ride the edges of the herd and be alert. But know your directions and call out loud and clear. Chances are you won't be making any difference. But on the other hand, you just might. So I think as you're starting in your editorship, I think that that is something... I see you doing so well is with this lariat pulling in different kinds of uh, uh, people who, who sometimes feel like they're the stray or they feel like they're in the middle of the herd. And, and I, and it's a challenge. Like one of the questions I want to ask you is as you kind of 
look forward and as you're looking at this, do you get a sense of, I mean, what, why in the world would, would you do this, Taylor? Let me, can, can I ask you that question? <laughs> like what, what kind of crazy person would actually do this? <laughs> is it is, a- it is one of the biggest honors of my life. Yeah. And one of the most intimidating things I have ever done to fill, to fill these shoes. As I, again, as I look back, there's something that just makes me feel so small looking back at all of the great people who have come before me, not just in the editorship, but the other founders and sure. the other, uh, you know, book review editors and the, just the people who have been involved and the amazing uh, intellectual careers that they have, the people that I admire so deeply yeah. who have kind of blazed this path. And uh, so I feel very, um, yeah, uh, outclassed in some ways. <laughs> but at the same time, I want to be able to, the dialogue had been such a lifeline to me yeah. And, yeah. and I think has such a, a invaluable place yes. in the, the the culture of the church in uh, of course uh, in LDS intellectual culture but also its respect and participation with non-LDS scholars and, and exposing non-LDS scholars to an intellectual yeah. version of Mormonism and so on um, that I wanted to be sure that I could continue that and that I was and I'm so honored to be able to have some small part in it yeah. um, Huge part. there's a great way in which again reading through these old issues feels so deeply personal and relevant to me and it's this it's this there's one one issue that I don't think gets talked about very much it it sticks out to me because the two main characters in it I always have to ask what's the cover because that's one of the things I forgot to bring up one of the funniest (laughs) things funniest things is to go through these early covers they are they're so interesting and 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 diverse. So so if you remember the cover, I'll know the issue. <laughs> so. It's 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 the second uh, uh, volume issue number one, but okay. I don't remember the cover I'll off the top it. of my head. But there's a debate between Sydney Sperry and oh. Herbert Snell. Yes, and these may not be names that, that are probably you know, front and center for most people. There is a Sidney Sperry symposium at BYU. And so his name is kind of uh, well known. But both of these two people speak a lot to me because they both went to Chicago Divinity School in the 1930s. Wow. And I ended up, of course, at Harvard Divinity School, the main rival to Chicago Divinity School. uh, 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 So we're not exactly the same. But I recognize a lot of the kinds of uh, experiences that both of them had. Um, they were both actually paid for by the church to go there. They were kind of called wow. to go out and they were a part of a group of about 10 or 12 young men, all young men in the 1930s wow. who were sent off to Chicago Divinity School and were then supposed to come back and teach at uh, a BYU or teach in the seminaries and institute programs, the highest, most sophisticated knowledge that was out there. Unbelievable. Um, and uh, this is one of my favorite episodes of these guys who go off and come back. And many of them stayed in the church. Some didn't. Right. Most of them ended up working for either BYU or the seminaries and institute program. Sure. But they did not all agree with one another. And Snell and Sperry had a real long-term rivalry. And it got personal. And uh, in this particular exchange, it gets very personal to the point of me being so uncomfortable reading it. 
Oh, come uh, on. You got to uh, do yeah. it. You can do it. Anyway. Bring it. Bring it. <laughs> you can't so do that. Snell at the time, I think he's at Weber State okay. um, as the Institute Director sure. at the time. I, he kind of bounces back and forth between Weber and, and, Lo and uh, Utah State. And he teaches in their um, history departments, but he also teaches their, uh, in the Institute programs. And he had actually published a real live book of biblical studies that was accepted in the non-LDS community. Still one of the only wow. Latter-day Saints. There's a, only a handful sure. of us that have ever done that. And he's in that category. Sperry, on the other hand, had gone to BYU and really just kind of had a Mormon-centered career. He, he tried to engage in um, a scholarship, but mostly did conservative scholarship and um, even to the point about almost fundamentalist in some in some ways. Sure. But they emerge out of the Chicago experience really on polar opposites of so how to evaluate <laughs> modern biblical studies. And so uh, so there's uh, just I'll just read quotes from each Go of them it. here. Snell is kind of talking. They're, they're talking about the place of the Bible in LDS culture. And Snell is sort of lamenting that. Um, serious biblical study is not valued among Latter-day Saints, not just from a historical perspective, but even just from a, a doctrinal right. perspective. He says, this change of status in the Bible, he sees it as declining, seems to be well attested by the relatively little attention given it by church speakers and writers. One seldom hears from the pulpit a sermon or lecture dealing with it in a historical or analytical way. And he's a big critic of the church's curriculum and just says, there's no analysis here. We're just doing proof texting and, and right. kind of goes through and pulls out some really popular examples that the church was using for proof texting and says, this is not what these texts mean. Sperry, Counter. here's his response. I get the unpleasant feeling that Professor Snell really looks upon the church as a great social institution and denies the divine keys of authority that it claims rests in its prophets, seers, and revelators. Professor Snell seems to go along with the modern critical view of the Bible, which are so often in disagreement with the Book of Mormon and the Pearl of Great Price. How can he do this and believe in Joseph Smith's divine vision is beyond me, and how Snell can so blithely disregard the careful studies of many conservative Bible scholars, both Catholic and Protestant, is to be wondered at. <laughs> so <laughs> it's... This kind of early apologetic, it, it pugilistic, personal. Well, and that's know. something we see pop up all yeah. the time. Is this is yeah. is sort of and almost I see this. Is it literature? Is it art? Is it moving our soul? Is it aesthetic? Is it or is it apologetics? You know, is the point yeah. to convey one or the other? One of the things that I really feel like, and and I think we've kind of really gone over this really well, is how all of these stories and all of these personalities, what these early issues offer is the fingerprints of our culture. Like I think of this, the, the mark making in the messy way, almost like my kids used to leave when they were little, they would, they would leave fingerprints all over the sliding glass door. And I almost didn't <laughs> want to wash them off because they were so sort of interesting. And I think that this is what we are seeing is the actual imprint of the uh, of mormonism in these early issues we're seeing how mm -hmm. how in that sort of handling of our faith handling of our um, ideology we are creating something that is that turns into its own third thing so that's one of the things i really enjoy too yeah probably the most famous piece to come out of uh, this time period is richard pole's what the church Absolutely. means to people like me 
I love the this. Iron Rod versus Liahona members. If you haven't read this, you, you absolutely have, need to read it. It's one of the most famous talks ever given uh, and, and it's absolutely necessary to read. It's been talked about a lot. It's been republished a lot. You can find it online in a million places, but that was first published in Dialogue uh, coming out of those that Stanford Palo Alto Ward uh, where he deli- where he delivered it and it was snatched up and and, uh, and and published there. But that wasn't the story I wanted to tell. I wanted to tell the story of what's going on with the Book of Abraham oh, during yes. this time period. Yes, this is so fascinating. So, yeah, so um, Dialogue really kind of gets lucky, I guess, in some respects, as uh, this major news story and major issue is breaking when... Um, the uh, Metropolitan of Art, yes. uh, Museum of Metropolitan Metropolitan Art, what is it? Metropolitan yep. Art, Museum of Art, there we go, in, uh, in New York, discovers that they have some of the Joseph Smith papyri. Yeah. And um, dialogue is on this story right from the beginning. There are issues, uh, there are articles on it, I think, for a full year in every single and issue that is, are kind of breaking news is as this they're processing this information. What year is this, Taylor? Is this 1967 or 68? It's 1967, okay. yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Let's see. Uh, I, I can get the some of the exact ones in here, but they are um, dealing with this. And, and, and the, if you don't know the story, um, the uh, manuscripts had been lost for a long, long time and uh, nobody knew where they were. Uh, and they discovered uh, the Book of Breathing and they discovered the hypocephalus that uh, that we have that little diagram in sure. the back of the Book of Abraham. And they found the originals to to all of these things. And lo and behold, they do not have the words of the Book of Abraham as we know it. it turns out <laughs> Joseph Smith didn't actually know how to read hieroglyphs. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it's a huge story. It's a huge crisis. Um, one that we are still sort of living in the legacy of debating what the meaning of that is. That those manuscripts uh, uh, don't say what uh, what what uh, Joseph Smith said that they said. And, um, you know, there's a new book out by Gibbon, by Terrell Gibbons and Brian Hogland that, that are addressing this and kind of the cutting edge stuff. But if you want to go back and read those first issues as they're just starting to kind of grapple with this and trying to figure out who Isis and Osiris and Hor and who all these yeah. are. Um, so anyway, it's just this really interesting moment in church history in, in, uh, in, in, seeing as they're dealing with it in real time. Well, and that's um, our con- and anyway, it's just Well, and it's almost story. this what's well, almost this face-to-face conversation with Joseph for the first time. You know, this is this it's a sit down a little bit too where we're going wait a second, you know. Yeah. So, do you have any final uh final thoughts I, or or uh, I'm reflections saving, on things? I'm saving a few things because I'm going uh, I, we said 5 years, but I'm stopping in 1970 because 1971 has so many, like 71 is the fuchsia issue, the women's issue, and 73 is the Lester Bush. I mean, I'm, I'm excited about these this next batch that's going in. I think that really what we what we did is we kind of covered today that they're that these founders are looking for they're looking for a soul, they're looking for for an a, you know a, an aesthetic, and they establish that in these early years and then they're able to take on really strongly it's so interesting one of my favorite issues also is the era issue well and the church just saying our position hasn't changed in 40 years it was fascinating to me that we have that they built a foundation strong enough to take on every national 
sort of uh, of topic as well. That's a great place to end. Thank you, Taylor. Thank you.